Okay, as you can see, title today is Being a Priest. I got really good stories about being a Baptist minister, wearing a robe and shawl and doing all those kind of things, but it's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But when I put up the word priest, all of us, me included, get a little cringy. Priest? It's kind of uncomfortable. Don't priests have like different rules and special things they have to do and they have to act certain ways and depending on what tradition they're in, do things a certain... Yeah. But remember, as the writer of 1 Peter is going to tell us, think of the Old Testament concept of being a priest. It was gross. I don't have a nice way to say that. Um, Animals everywhere being slaughtered, being offered, and had to be offered just the right way in the right place at the right time. Because this is the way they showed they love God. As and I'm not saying this for credit, I'm just saying this for a fact. In my one-year Bible that I read through, today was Leviticus chapter 1 through 3. Yay. I was reminded today that salt is important. Whenever you offered a grain offering to the priests, you made sure you had to salt it properly. Those of you who aren't aware, the offerings that are made to the priests... They get to eat some of that. That's how they eat. But when we think of priests, isn't that like an old thing? Or we don't do that, do we? And, well, maybe we do, maybe we don't. The term priest that you know in the English language comes from many other languages, meaning a bridge builder. To build a bridge between one place and the other. To build a bridge between God and the people and the people and God. That's all it means to be a priest. You're supposed to be making that connection. Now, today and next week, I will finish up Baptist distinctives and why we have Baptists on the names and those kind of things. The concept of being a priest or priesthood of all believers is a very common thought in Protestant life today. But it was started by Baptists who were told that you couldn't do that. And of course, we all know that when you tell a Baptist they can't do something, they're going to do it. It is such a common phrase that you can look it up in the dictionary. In Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the term priesthood of the believer is a doctrine of the Christian church. Every individual has direct access to God without ecclesiastical mediation, and each individual shares the responsibility of ministering to other members of the community of believers. It's such a common thing now in the 21st century using the term priesthood of all believers. Notice my language is slightly different priesthood of all believers, that even it's in your dictionary. So why is this important, and why are you talking about it? And how are you going to talk about it after following construction lessons from Justin and singing by Steve? I have no idea. However, today's text tells us a lot about it, which reminds me of my childhood, which is always bad when a minister says it reminds me of my childhood. Reminds me of childhood and the horrible things I had to do as a child. Just horrible things as I look at my teenage child. Horrible, awful things I had to do. Now, my father, who's a wonderful, godly person who worked hard, who grew up poor in rural Arkansas, who would have sang, and his clapping skills are much better than mine because I have no rhythm, he would have been able to clap perfectly to everything we just did and probably been able to lead the song and sing the song. 
He grew up, worked his way through a private school, went on to graduate school when that had never been done in his family before. He got married, had five children. And they probably would have had more, but I don't know, they had five children. And he worked hard, and he got a good job, and he went in the medical industry, and all these things that were never expected for him to do. And we eventually moved from a very small area. We were living with five children, four boys, one girl, all within seven and a half years of each other, by the way, all in the same house. We finally moved out into the suburbs of Little Rock, Arkansas. And we got this wonderful house to live in. Eventually, after we worked and we worked and we worked and we worked, we all had separate bedrooms. All five children had separate bedrooms, large backyard, woods to run around in. It was wonderful. But we got a little older, and my father believed that we should have a good work ethic. And we should learn to take care of ourselves, and we should be resilient. One of the ways he did that was he taught us to chop wood for the fireplace with an axe, a real axe, which I believe was the dullest axe ever created ever anywhere. (laughs) I still swear to that today. But if you would like to get the gathering of the self-boys together and have them groan and complain, it will not be when we were all, mom went back to graduate school, we didn't have any money, we were all living in bunk beds in a room much smaller than my office, all four of us. No, we, we tell stories about how we survived that. There's one phrase that we remember from our childhood that still shins, tremors up our spine and horrifies us. It's the words of my father saying, boys, it's time to move some rocks. Now, we lived in this wonderful place. And it was great, but it had rocks all over the place. And so according to rumor... My mother, my lovely, wonderful mother, said we need to move some rocks so we can create some flower bed or some landscaping. That's the cover story. But I recall summer days, before I was when I was in between swing and racket, we would take this gigantic pile of rocks, and I want you to visualize bad prison movies. This gigantic pile of rocks. And we would move them all over here to the other side of the house. Did I mention the house was large? Other side of the house. And we'd place them. It had to be just perfectly placed because my father is more type A than me. So it has to be absolutely perfectly placed. But then weird things happened. Three days later, I recall distinctly, and all of my siblings agree to this story. Three days later, we had to take those very same rocks and move them all the way back over there where they were before. (sighs) It makes us just cringe. I often feel like rocks are kryptonite and I'm Superman. I don't like rocks. I don't enjoy rocks. And I am so glad that I live in the 21st century. Now here in Macomb, we have rocks. And we have things that sometimes look like hills. And we have grass. I want you to remember that They didn't have grass in the first century in Jerusalem. And I'm just going to read to you the text. There's not going to be scripture behind me. I want you to listen based upon the story that I just told you. Maybe there's a point. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 
The writer says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that caused people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined to do. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Unless you somehow fell asleep with my voice reading 1 Peter, you may have heard rocks and stones and building, and corner a lot. We have reason to believe that the writer of 1 Peter was sitting looking out at Jerusalem when he's writing this. And unlike the writer of 1 Peter, he doesn't sit out at his desk and write something on Monday and look out and see Candy Lane, which is just wonderful, by the way, when you're trying to be inspired. Looks out there. He probably sat down at his desk, whatever it would be as a desk, looked outside of his house through a window carved in the rock, looked outside and saw large mounds of rocks. No pavement, just rocks everywhere. And visualize that the living stone calls you to be a living stone. Rocks were an important part of the culture in Jerusalem. Rocks were the foundation of everything in Jerusalem. Think about this for a second. It's hard not to even imagine a rock in their culture. Imagine you're walking along in Jerusalem in your sandals. Let's compare them to the dollar flip-flops you get at the Dollar Tree, that kind of sandals. You're walking along, and there are rocks everywhere. There's not smooth pavement. There's rocks, and it's dirty, and it's gross. And there's a reason they wash feet every time they came in a house. Rocks are everywhere. Today in Jerusalem, in Palestine... Buildings are designed to be that blah, rocky look. Even in 1915, 1960, when they started constructing with cinder blocks, everything looked wrong. It didn't fit everything. So there's a law, even today, that when you build something in Jerusalem, you must make it look like it's rock. That's why it all looks kind of blah and nothing like limestone. Rocks were a part of the culture. When the writer of 1 Peter says stones and rocks and all of this, everyone knows what he means. And yes, everyone in their culture knew what a cornerstone was. I do very little manual labor, so I hardly know what a cornerstone is. But Justin's already explained it to you, so we're good there. It's the thing that everything else is built around. The writer of 1 Peter wants us to see that because of the cornerstone, we are priests to everyone. James Leo Garrett, the editor of We Baptist, wrote, Each believer is a priest, both before God for oneself and by caring for fellow believers and for persons in whom, in the world for whom Christ died. 
the writer of 1 Peter wants us to see the stones. He's looking out his window probably and visualizing the stones coming to life because that is the power of the resurrection. An awful, terrible stone that I still get twinges for visualizing carrying rocks from one place to another. The writer of 1 Peter says, those are living and you're even better than they are and they can do amazing things and you can do amazing things because of the resurrection. The reason we believe that everyone is a priest is because the writer of 1 Peter did. And in typical what we call broadest style preaching, yeah, I do have three points very quickly. I'll tell a few stories and hopefully it'll make sense. Once, being a, one, being a priest means the Bible is open. This sermon is to set up next week's sermon. One of the major mistakes that we have made as a culture in the United States is we have not used the biblical text properly. We've used it in very narrow ways, and when disastrous events occurred in September in this country many years ago, people came to churches and groves, and we told them, do it our way. If we all have equal access to God, we all should have equal access to the biblical text. That's why understanding the biblical text is done best in circles. It's done together. It's one of the important Baptist principles of being in circles and gathering together. Next week, at the risk of sounding like a commercial, I'm going to unpack some of the biases we have and some of the horrible theology that we have developed because we have forgotten that everyone has access to God. And we have created a Bible tells you so God. And we've created fake Christians. It's not the Bible as I tell you you have to believe. It's the biblical writers writing biblical books to real people at a real place at a real time that is open to everyone. Here's the good news of me promoting next week. We're on to point number two already. Being a priest, if you truly believe that you have access to God and you can speak for God, through God, all of those things, because you have access to God, then being a priest must be built around being personal and voluntary. Faith, if it is not personal and voluntary, is not faith at all. If there's any coercion, if there's any trickery, if there's any manipulation, if there's any government enforcement, it is not faith at all. In September 2001, a national crisis happened and Christians failed to convey God's love in a time of fear. The rise of humanism and atheism in the United States can be directly linked to this event and the failure of Christians to talk about faith as a personal and voluntary thing. Experts say that the followers of Jesus missed out on an important principle that would have made sense to the culture they were speaking to at a time of crisis when they listened. The church came out with a bunch of platitudes and said, you need to believe this because the Bible says so, and you need to believe this because God does this, and all those things, instead of simply saying, this is my faith, this is what I believe, you get to choose what you believe. If that had been done, we might not be having the rise of humanism and atheism that we have in our culture today. Faith must be voluntary. 
writer of 1 Peter conveys this very clearly in what we know in verse 6 through 8. He even quotes the Old Testament and says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined to do. Whether you think Peter wrote 1 Peter or not, and I think he did, but you should know if you've had me as your pastor long enough to know that I'm not going to say you have to believe that. Whoever wrote 1 Peter wanted us to have the idea of Peter. Hey, I don't know if you're aware, Peter did a lot of stumbling. With his feet, he tripped over rocks. With his mouth, he tripped over everything. So often we present a version of God that causes people to stumble. Because we want it to be this way and it has to look this way and you have to agree with me. If you don't agree with me, then you're awful and you're wrong and you're terrible. At the risk of repeating words that I've said 5,000 times already, faith and force can never go together. If there's ever any conversion, any coercion, any trickery, in the faith that you develop, you're not really developing faith. It's a classic story that we tell as U.S. pastors a lot about this issue. It's not a once upon a time story, but just go with me. In the early 1800s in Germany, the economy was going well and there was a Jewish couple. They had a son and he seemed bright and intelligent and wonderful and great. And they were raising him. Now, they weren't really devout Jewish people. They were just kind of culturally Jewish people. But they were intellectual and they thought and they, they were raising him. And even the scandalous thing, the husband and the wife were both working in the 1800s. And it was just, but they did and things were great. And then all of a sudden the economy made a downturn. Both the parents lost their jobs. But they thought, well, we'll get new jobs. It'll be fine because they were overly qualified. They were highly educated compared to the people who were in the small town they lived in. They could have served as clerks in any capacity, in the courts, in businesses, and done things in ways you can't even imagine. But they couldn't find a job. They went everywhere. And they couldn't find a job. And they got so frustrated for many months and not having any money and everything, they said, Why can't we find work here? We've got credentials and training. Why can we not find work in this town? Eventually, someone gave them an answer, and they did that thing we do when we don't really want to admit something and had their heads down. And, and the response was really simple, but it should be really disturbing to us today. They were told politely, it's because you're not a Christian. It's because you don't belong to the church. So as you might imagine... In that heavily Protestant area in Germany, they became baptized, they joined the church, and magically they had a job. They had more job offers than they could possibly deal with. We sometimes forget the damage that we do when we forget that faith is personal and voluntary. Because they had a son. And the son watched this 
And he was proven historically to be quite intelligent. You may have heard of him. His name is Karl Marx. Marxism's not a huge fan of the church. And this is not a once upon a time story. This is from the memoirs and results of their children and their family. And they tell the story exactly that way every time. If faith is not voluntary and personal, it's not faith at all. Three, being a priest means we are responsible. I don't know about you, I'm not a fan of the word responsible. It means I have to do stuff. But if the concept of priesthood of all believers is something we believe in, if we feel we have access to God and we get to speak and try to convey the love and the truth of God for God and then speak back to God on the benefit of others and ourselves, then we must believe in the priesthood of all believers. That means every single one of you has equal access to God. Every single one of you has equal ability with God as a believer. Writer of 1 Peter makes that really clear, that you're part of something way bigger than yourself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, when you read that, you may read that in a different light, and it may not be, oh, that's so powerful. A couple reasons. One, it's translated into English, and that, uh, that annoying phrase that I have a hard time reading, once you were not a people, but now you're a people of God, in the original language is much more powerful. But do you see that the words are plural? You are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You are part of something way bigger than yourself. The people that the writer of 1 Peter is speaking to and writing to have lost jobs because they decided to follow Jesus. They've lost family members because they decided to follow Jesus. They've lost money because they decided to follow Jesus. They've lost literally everything. And he says you are, can be stronger than that because Jesus is stronger than that. But I don't feel stronger than that. I don't feel special. I don't feel anything. Remember, and fair warning, when I preached through 1 Peter before, I used many Marvel superhero images of being stronger and more powerful. But the listeners of the words of 1 Peter had a superhero. You may have heard of him. It's called The Rock. You know, put The Rock up. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Not that rock. That rock who made a few good movies and a bunch of terrible ones. And that rock who keeps asking you if you smell what The Rock is cooking. No! Peter, Petros, The Rock. We hear about it in Matthew's Gospel. So Simon Peter answered to Jesus, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are the rock. And on this rock I will build my church. 
and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Horrible Peter who can't keep his mouth shut at the right times, who can't keep things going. Jesus says, I am building my church on you, the rock. And all of the underworld can do nothing to stop you. That's what the gates of Hades means. All of the underworld can't stop you. How do you think Peter felt? Have you ever felt overwhelmed like you couldn't do what God wanted you to do? Have you ever felt like there was nothing you could do? Maybe you're like the people who lived in a small town. We'll say it's Arkansas since I've picked on my home state for a little while. It's a small town in Arkansas. There was a problem with the building. They needed to build a brand new gymnasium. But as happens in public schools, they did not have very much money. So they needed to construct the building. And they realized they were going to have to make some cuts and not make things to the perfect specifications they originally had in mind. But it's a gymnasium to play basketball, so they know they have to have baskets or goals and balls and space and enough place to play in. So they made the decision to reduce the amount of space between the bleachers and the court. And they eventually built this gymnasium under budget, just slightly under budget. And it took a little bit of getting used to. Because when you walk to that gymnasium and you walk in through the front door, the main door, literally you are stepping on the court if you're not careful. You as priests, as the traditional image we use, you as people on God's priestly team, you the people on the priest team are already in the game. The people who stepped in that gymnasium were already in the game. They just had to make sure they found their place. You're already in it whether you like it or not. If you've chosen to be a follower of Jesus, you've become a priest in all ways. And as a result, you have complete and utter access to God. Do you want to be a good player on the team or a bad player on the team? And if you don't know, that might answer the question. The writer of 1 Peter chapter 2 was writing to people with no hope. And he was writing to tell them, there is hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for everyone. Because Jesus is stronger. And you are called living stones who can accomplish so much. Do not forget that the people he was writing to, who were most likely Gentiles, start the movement of showing love that conquers the Roman Empire. They were stronger. Maybe we can be too. Let's pray. Holy God, I know life is complicated and life is tricky and we're not sure what to do and we're not sure how to do it so much and we feel so inadequate. this text was written to people who didn't even have religious backgrounds. They just knew that something had happened. And they probably weren't overly educated. They just knew something had happened. And those were the people that changed the world. Forgive me for all the times that I failed to be your change agent. Forgive us 
as U.S. Christians who put way too much emphasis in saying the right things instead of doing the right things. Please forgive us. Help us to remember that you are the cornerstone. You are the one in which everything is built upon. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.